Great to see everybody. Happy Resurrection Day. Um, we know as believers that's every day. And we meet on the Lord's Day because Jesus got up from the dead on a Sunday. No more Saturday Sabbath gatherings for the synagogue, uh, for, the, for the completed, uh, the Messianic children. One little tidbit that came into my mind just now, so I'll give it to you, is the Sabbath Saturday pattern was the end of the week. So you work all week, do your law keeping, and then you come to the synagogue. Um, I definitely think there were regenerate Jews who did that. But they came on the back end. Jesus gets up on the first day of the week from the dead, so now we worship on the front end of the week. I know we Westerners think the weekend ends on Sunday, but the week actually starts on Sunday. It's the first day of the week. We gather on the first day of the week because Jesus got from the dead on the first day of the week. There's something powerful as a parable of the gospel in that that we begin the week with rest and worship to receive all that we need that's provided in the risen Christ. We don't gather at the end of the week and bring God all our good deeds. Uh, we start with empty rest. Good morning, brother. Wow. Praise the Lord. Somehow we got a gift from Nigeria. Oh, amen. Okay, well, let's pray together. Father, we come and agree with what your word says. If he who raised, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he will also give life to your mortal bodies. And we give you glory that the risen Jesus, his spirit is within us who believe, and we look forward to that day when glorified with our risen Jesus, we won't have capacity to sin, but we'll have exuberant, ever-increasing, unhindered delight in you, love for your people, enjoyment of your new creation, your perfect world. We long for that day, Lord. And we pray that today we would receive from the risen Jesus, by your spirit, through your word, that we would worship you in truth, in spirit and in truth. Thank you for the think, high school students that are in, us, in with us today. Pray for the middle school students as they are being taught your word and all the children in the classes that during this time you would draw us near to Jesus. And Lord, we pray for all who will come in the gathering to follow. Uh, many regulars and many uh, new faces, and we pray, Lord, that you would meet us all in gospel power. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, it's April 17th. This is the third Sunday of the month. We're looking at practical theology in our core doctrine series. It's the So What Week in light of the great truths of the Scriptures. We've looked at uh, biblical theology a couple of weeks ago historical theology last week, and today a practical theology on this doctrine, God's saving work in faith and sanctification. This is after you come to faith in Christ, what is God up to in the lives of his people until he brings us home to glory. And so practically, there are seven things I want to try to lay before you, but uh, I've set my alarm for a 
little bit earlier than normal uh, to give us a little more of a break. Especially so that those of you who have kids can go get them quickly so that the workers can be on time to the service as well. So, let me read for us Article 10 of our Elder Affirmation of Faith. Again, it's a long one. But I pray that you'll be instructed, discipled, and, and will worship even as you hear it. We believe that justification and sanctification are both brought about by God through faith, but not in the same way. Justification is an act of God's imputing and reckoning. Sanctification is an act of God's imparting and transforming. Thus, the function of faith in regard to each is different. In regard to justification, faith is not the channel through which the power or transformation flows to the soul of the believer, but rather faith is the occasion of God's forgiving, acquitting, and reckoning as righteous. A moment in time. But in regard to sanctification, faith is indeed the channel through which divine power and transformation flow to the soul, and the sanctifying work of God through faith does indeed touch the soul and change it into the likeness of Christ. We believe that the reason justifying faith necessarily sanctifies in this way is fourfold. One, justifying faith is a persevering, that is, continuing kind of faith. Even though we're justified at the first instant of saving faith, yet this faith justifies only because it is the kind of faith that will surely persevere. The extension of this faith into the future is, as it were, contained in the first seed of faith as the oak in the acorn. Thus, the moral effects of persevering faith may be rightly described as the effects of justifying faith. Two, we believe that justifying faith trusts in Christ not only for the gift of imputed righteousness and the forgiveness of sins, but also for the fulfillment of all his promises to us based on that reconciliation. Justifying faith magnifies the finished work of Christ's atonement by resting securely in all the promises of God obtained and guaranteed by that all-sufficient work. Three. We believe that justifying faith embraces Christ in all his roles. This is not an exhaustive list, by the way. I haven't said that any week prior. Uh, creator, sustainer, savior, teacher, guide, comforter, helper, friend, advocate, protector, and Lord. Justifying faith does not divide Christ, accepting part of him and rejecting the rest. All of Christ is embraced by justifying faith even before we're fully aware of or fully understand all that he will be for us. As more of Christ is truly revealed to us in his word, genuine faith recognizes Christ and embraces him more fully and for. We believe that this embracing of all of Christ is not a mere intellectual assent or a mere decision of the will, but is also a heartfelt, spirit-given, yet imperfect, satisfaction in all that God is for us in Jesus. Therefore, the change of mind and heart that turns from the moral ugliness, danger of sin, and is sometimes called repentance, is included in the very nature of saving faith. We believe that this persevering, future-oriented, Christ-embracing, heart-satisfying faith is life-transforming, and therefore renders intelligible the teaching of the scripture that final salvation in the age to come depends on the transformation of life and yet does not contradict justification by faith alone. The faith which alone justifies 
cannot remain alone, but works through love. We believe that this simple, powerful reality of justifying faith is God's gift, which he gives unconditionally in accord with God's electing love, so that no one can boast in himself, but only give all glory to God for every part of salvation. We believe that the Holy Spirit is the decisive agent in this life transformation, but that he has supplied to us and works holiness in us through our daily faith in the Son of God, whose trustworthiness he loves to glorify. We believe that the sanctification which comes by the Spirit through faith is imperfect and incomplete in this life. Although slavery to sin is broken and sinful desires are progressively weakened by the power of a superior satisfaction in the glory of Christ, yet there remain remnants of corruption in every heart that give rise to irreconcilable war and call for vigilance in the lifelong fight of faith. Finally, we believe that all who are justified will win this fight. They will persevere in faith and never surrender to the enemy of their souls. This perseverance is the promise of the new covenant obtained by the blood of Christ and worked in us by God himself, yet not so as to diminish, but only to empower and encourage our vigilance so that we may say in the end, I have fought the good fight. It was not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. So as I mentioned, there are seven aspects of sanctification that I want us to think about today. We'll see how far we're able to get in the time we have. But if I could summarize sanctification, I don't know if this is a watertight definition, but I would say that this is a faithful summary. Living in spirit-filled union with the risen Christ. Can't divorce sanctification from living in fellowship with the risen Jesus. He is, 1 Corinthians 1.30, our sanctification. And it's his life in us, 2 Corinthians, uh, Galatians 2.20, not I, but Christ who lives within me. It's him and union with him that, that is our sanctification. I tried to argue for why I believe that's a very faithful understanding of how sanctification happens last week in our historic theology. So the seven aspects, I'll show you the first four. Look at the first word. Expect. Number two, embrace. Number three, prove. Number four, walk. So this is practical. I'll come back to those in a minute. Don't get lost. I'm going to show you also. Be diligent to seek. Number five. Boast. Number six. And make war. Number seven. Well, let's take them one at a time. Expect and pursue practical righteousness through continual consecration of life to God. I don't know if you're familiar with that long C word, consecration, but that's what I want us to talk about, and it comes from this part of the first point of Article 10, the yellow. But in regard to sanctification, faith is indeed the channel through which divine power and transformation flow to the soul, and the sanctifying work of God through faith does indeed touch the soul and change it into the likeness of Christ. This is the idea of consecration. I want you to think about uh, the connection between consecration, we'll try to explain that in a second, and sanctification. Man's part and God's part. Man's part, of course, fueled entirely by the Holy Spirit in union with Jesus. In the Old Testament, God commands in Leviticus 20, you shall... You shall consecrate yourselves 
therefore, and be holy. For I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Well, do you see the relationship already? Your part is consecration. God's part is sanctification. And the two go hand in hand. Leviticus has a phrase that has stumped many um, in how it applies in the New Covenant. And the phrase is this. Anything devoted to destruction is most holy to the Lord. Well, that's a picture of a sacrifice in Leviticus. Anything you give totally to God, you can't be part dead. If you devote it to destruction, that means give it as a sacrifice to the Lord, according to His standard, it is most holy to the Lord. So a consecrated life is the life God sanctifies. You could say it negatively. An unconsecrated life will not be sanctified. So think about this. Do you use your hands to indulge in sin and use the same hands to clasp in prayer? Do you use your lips to speak ill of your neighbor and the same lips to offer prayer to God or praise? Do you use your eyes to look at something sinful, nefarious, illicit, indulgent in rebellion, and the same eyes to behold Holy Scripture to try to see the face of Christ. We're all guilty of everything I just said. Man's part is to consecrate, to give, or look at it in Romans 6, it's on the screen, to give the members of your body, the parts of you, consecrated to the Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust and do not go on, here it is, presenting the members of your body. That's the actual parts of your human body. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. Resurrection Sunday. And your members, that's the parts of you, as instruments of righteousness to God. That's consecration. Romans 6 goes on, verse 19, For just as you presented your members, that's the parts of your body, as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, you reap what you sow, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness. What's the result? Sanctification. So do you see the same relationship that Leviticus talked about? Consecrate and be sanctified. That's what point one is talking about. That's practical holiness. All of Christ, uh, all of life, all for Christ. All right, so not only pursue practical righteousness and expect God will change you as you consecrate yourself. Another way to say it, don't expect sanctification if you won't consecrate yourself. Just like we should expect and pursue righteousness through consecration, we should also, number two, embrace the doctrine of perseverance as a blood-bought promise to fuel your pursuit of Christ. Now, it sounds like a bunch of churchy gibberish. You've heard it this way, once saved, always saved. That's a great biblical truth. I do not mean to undermine it, but it has led, wrongly, to license to sin. It's like the proverbial fire insurance. You give your life to Christ, you live however you please, you go to His heaven when you die. 
Because once saved, always saved. Well, that's obviously out of step with the whole teaching of Scripture. The doctrine of perseverance is actually fuel to pursue Christ. It's not license to sin, it's freedom to live holy. This affirmation says in point two, we believe that justifying faith is a persevering, continuing faith. Down in the yellow, the extension of this faith into the future is, as it were, contained in the first seed of faith as the oak in the acorn. The tree will come out in sanctification once we're justified. Point two also says, we believe that justifying faith trusts in Christ. For what? For the fulfillment of all God's promises to us that are based on the reconciliation Jesus purchased. How does it happen? End in yellow. By resting securely in all the promises of God obtained and guaranteed by that all-sufficient work. I can't take you into it now, but Hudson Taylor has a glorious series of sermons. He preached to the China Inland Mission on sanctification. And he basically said, Jesus has already purchased it for you. It's falling like rain from the sky. Don't let one drop hit the ground. Catch everything Jesus bought. Catch every drop of rain because it glorifies Christ for us to lay hold of everything God has promised and Jesus has purchased. Hebrews 12, we do two things. Underline. Lay aside every encumbrance and sin which entangles us. We do another thing. Run with endurance the race that is set before us. But this isn't a work, this is rest. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Now look at this phrase. The author and perfecter of faith. It's not, it, it's not a pronoun, our faith. It's faith. Real faith is already started and finished, perseverance, by Jesus. So just keep your eyes on him because he already paid for the completion of your faith, not just the beginning. So the doctrine of perseverance actually fuels, let's say, the doctrine of eternal security of the believer. Once saved, always saved. Fuels perseverance. It doesn't undermine it. Romans 12, by the mercies of God, because of the first 11 chapters of this incredible gospel, do something. Present your body as a living and holy sacrifice. Do not be conformed to this world. How? Passively. Be being transformed. Let it happen to you. How? By renewing your mind. So that you may prove what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. You have to saturate your mind like your body would get wrinkled sitting in a bathtub for an hour. Let your mind get saturated with God's Word. And this will renew your mind. So we're definitely not going to make it through all seven. We might make it through four. So expect real change. How? Consecrate your life to God. Every part of you. And repent on all the moments that we all fail. Be a repenting Christian. Number two, embrace perseverance as fuel. Number three, prove your union with Christ through increased acquaintance with Jesus. Now, before I go to the next slide, because I don't want you reading it while, I'm, while I say what I'm about to say, this is what I mean. 
what, what I think the affirmation means and what I believe the Scripture teaches. Strive to be more acquainted with Jesus than any person you know. Would you say you know Jesus more than any other person you know? I'm ashamed to give my answer to that. But we should strive to so know Him. He's not an ethereal idea. He's a person. And we can know Him. We're justified precisely for this privilege of sanctifying fellowship with Jesus. All of Christ is embraced by justifying faith even before we're fully aware of or fully understand all that He will be for us. As more of Christ is truly revealed to us in His Word, genuine faith recognizes Him and embraces Him more fully. You start to see His inner, I-N-N-E-R, inside nature. You start to see His heart, His love, His devotion to the Father, his imitation of the Father. You start to see his human, in his humanity, his voluntary subordination to the Father's will, though he's God. You get to know him more, and you can't help but love him, and that's how God changes you. Paul writes to the Galatians, with whom he was not happy, my children, with whom I am again in labor until one thing happens Christ is formed in you. This word labor is uh, the word birth pains. I was like, I'm working hard. Like the hardest human thing that anybody can do and survive. Childbirth. Our sisters. Going through that. Paul says, I'm laboring among you. I'm working hard. But there's only one goal. Christ in you. Christ formed in you. Could you imagine a little baby growing into adulthood? Paul said, that's what I'm working for in your life. The fullness of Christ filling up your whole life. It's the privilege of sanctification. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul writes to the Corinthians in a similar vein. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I'm afraid... That is, the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. Your minds will be led away or astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So what's the one thing Paul wants for the Corinthians? Put it positively. The last phrase, look at it. He wants your mind simply and purely devoted to Christ. Could you say that that is a summary sketch of your current life? All your mind, simple and pure. It's the Old Testament idea of a unified heart. One mind, one heart. Not a divided, duplicitous mind. Not a fragmented heart. A united heart. All for Christ. A simple mind, one-mindedness, all for Christ. That's all Paul wanted for the Corinthians. The blessing of sanctification. Well, I'm going to give you one more, and I'm about to decide which one. Hmm. Walk in repentance. Yes, do that. 
Yes, 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 do that. You used to stray from Him, but now you've returned to Him. Uh, seek to understand and apply God's Word. Let's do this one. Diligently seek to understand and apply God's Word to all of your life because you believe holiness is an indispensable effect of union with Christ now and forever. I trust that you understand that understanding the Bible does not make you a Christian. I also trust that you have experienced Bible-wielding Christians who weaponize His Word against Christians. Not what we're talking about. But we should each diligently seek to understand and apply God's Word to our whole life. And here's the reason. The because. Because. We actually believe that without holiness, we'll never be with Him. That's what Scripture teaches. Uh, 10.3 says, The faith which justifies cannot remain alone, but works through love. Galatians 5 says all these vice list issues, unholiness, all of them. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's sobering. It, it's not a threat, it's a promise. This is real. Christ produces holiness in His people. The vice lists are in the Bible because God wants us to put them off. And we believe without sanctification, holiness, no one will see the Lord. So we seek to understand and apply God's Word to our whole life. Because we're painfully aware of the lack of holiness, and we want to be. Peter writes, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, written where? In God's Word, Leviticus in particular. You shall be holy, for I am holy. It's, it's a word-saturated life. Well, boast in Christ, because He does all the work by the Spirit, and make war on your sin and try to help other believers do the same. Uh, my, my only comment on that last one will be the verse. By the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored more than all of them, but it wasn't me. The grace of God with me. You see personal and corporate there? Where did you labor, Paul? among the churches, to do what? Help them fight sin and live holy and know all the promises that are theirs in Christ. Show them the beauty of Christ. Help them to apply that to their lives and practical situations. The more you help others fight sin, the more you will be helped to fight your sin. Uh, so sanctification is a community project. 